All right, good morning, guys. Let's try it again. Good morning, guys. Yeah, that's better. I like us to start awake. We are in the book of Philemon, so go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. In our Bible, it's going to be page 1000. Philemon is a tiny little book, easy to miss. Uh, if you happen to find Hebrews, just look to the left. It's, uh, it's right before the bigger book. Um, it is a small book, but it is loaded with insight for us today. In this letter, essentially, you have um, Paul um, basically writing to Philemon, who was a wealthy landowner, and, and he hosted the church in his home, about Onesimus, who was uh, a runaway slave, a runaway servant. Onesimus had worked his way into the inner circle of trust in Philemon's home. Uh, it looks like, from the best we can guess, that he used that as an opportunity to ultimately steal from Philemon, to take something of great value, and in that, to run away and, and escape to Rome, where he thought he would disappear into the broader world. Problem was, in Rome, he met Paul. And in meeting Paul, he also got to meet Jesus. He heard the gospel. He became a believer. Grace came in and completely changed his heart. Um, He partnered with Paul. He served Paul. And ultimately, um, as a result of what God was doing in his heart, he carried this letter back home with him, back to the the very home that he had violated trust and stolen and um, all the relational chaos that comes with that. And so as we look at this letter, we're getting an incredible insight into first century Christianity and how the gospel really brought um, kind of a level of chaos into uh, these relationships, beautiful chaos, but it also gives us insight into how the gospel speaks into the chaos of our lives. So let's take a look at this. We're going to read, it's a short book, so we're just going to read the whole thing together, okay? Starting in verse one, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever." No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own, of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. 
At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. This little letter, um, like I said, gives us a powerful glimpse into really uh, the dynamics of first century Christianity and, and, and the first century world as, as this brand new faith is breaking in and kind of messing with the social relationships and upending a little bit of, of um, how people relate to one another. Um, but it, it gives us as well really just a powerful glimpse into how grace operates in human relationships, right? I mean, all of us know, none of us have been here in this place in this same exact situation, but we all know what it is to, to have um, painful, jacked up relationships. We know what it is to be betrayed. We know what it is to have somebody that we trust not live up to our trust. We know what it is to have somebody that um, uh, should have been for us be against us. We know what it is to have someone hurt us, to have someone leave us, to, to, to have somebody um, take something from us that they can't return our innocence or our, our security. Um, we know what it is to be hurt. And this little letter has power, powerful insights into how grace speaks into those places of pain and how it really can transform the way we relate to one another. Um, to kind of launch this, I want to talk a little bit about um, a fellow that many of you have probably heard about. Many of you see the movie Unbroken. A few, a few nods not very many. Uh, anybody read the book? It's way better. Um, if, you, if you saw the movie, I highly recommend the book. Um, but it's about a guy named Louis Zamperini. And Louis Zamperini um, is, is a very interesting figure in American history. Um, he basically was kind of a street urchin as a kid, getting into a lot of trouble, um, not very motivated, and um, really getting into to a mess when his older brother um, kind of inspired him to get involved in sports. And, and, um, and as he got involved in sports, it turned out that, that he was actually um, very, very athletic. In fact, incredibly fast. And it looked like that, that he was actually poised to become one of the fastest runners the world had ever known, breaking, potentially breaking world records. And, 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 the, and the buzz around him was growing. And, and uh, in his first Olympics, man, he made this huge impact. People noticed him and they're like, man, the next Olympics, man, that's, that's when he's going to come into his prime. And that's when we're going to see. The problem was World War II came around. And, and when World War II came around, he was enlisted and sent off to war. And, um, and then the story gets even crazier, right? And I'm not going to unpack it all, but he's on a bomber and they get wrecked and they end up in the ocean and he's floating out in the ocean longer than anybody had ever survived. He gets captured. And, and then he goes into the Japanese prison camps and he moves from prison camp to prison camp. And he actually, uh, spends time in the most notorious of the Japanese prison camps, which is saying something because the, the Japanese prison camps were notoriously brutal. The Japanese had very little respect. In fact, it was seen as quite dishonorable to be captured in combat. It was much better to honorably die than to allow yourself to be captured. And so when they captured people, they treated them um, with, with less than respect. I mean, it was, it was outright uh, abuse because they were seen as, in that culture, the least um, uh, honorable people um, around. And so they, these, these camps were, were notoriously bad. As usual, um, not only are you going to have bad camps, but you're going to have bad leaders. And out of those leaders, you're going to have really, really bad leaders. And one of the most notorious was a guy named Watanabe. Watanabe was known as the bird because of the weird way he walked and held himself. 
But autonomy um, was notorious for being absolutely um, just diabolically cruel to the people under his care. Uh, and he would adopt specific, specific um, prisoners and, and pour out like the, just the, the full um, unbridled uh, anger and hatred that he had in his heart on them. And, uh, and of course, that became Louis, Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was in two of Watanabe's uh, camps. Now, after the war, Watanabe was listed as number 23 on General MacArthur's top 40 war criminals. Um, so, so MacArthur looked at him and said, He's, he is right up there with the worst of the worst as far as war criminals go. Um, now, he was never captured or brought to justice after the war. He escaped. He hid in the Japanese countryside. Some political forces came to play after the war. And so they ended up giving amnesty to those that, the, that were in the military that were being accused of, of um, military crimes. And so he was able to live out the rest of his life until 2003, um, never being brought to justice, if you want to put it that way, never captured, never prosecuted. Um, and that's part of the story. Now, if you saw the movie... Um, I really think Angelina Jolie, who was the director, got it totally wrong because the climax of the movie ultimately comes when, when Louis Zamperini is holding this, this, this really heavy um, log above his head and, and, and autonomy, the, 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 the bird, is basically trying to push him to the point of breaking because if he can push him to the point of breaking, then he wins. It's a power struggle. And, um, and crazy enough, um, Louis Zamperini doesn't drop it. <laughs> he, he holds it up. Um, and, uh, and that becomes the climactic moment in the movie, right? For, for Joe Lee's vision of this story, that's the moment when he remains unbroken. When, he, when, when this guy did his best to break him and couldn't, as a result, he was broken, right? We, we see the bird in the movie falling on the ground and weeping and all this stuff. And, and then um, Zamperini, after the end of the war, flies home. The end of the movie is him climbing off the plane and kissing the native soil. Like, I'm finally home. I've arrived unbroken. And that completely misrepresents the story. You get a much better picture in the, in the novel or the, the bio, biography. But even the biography, I think, misrepresents some of it. Um, um, because here's the thing, Louis was broken. I mean, he absolutely was broken. When, when he got home, um, he was plagued by what we would describe today as PTSD. I mean, he just was, was having nightmares of, about the bird, and he would wake up in the middle of the night. He talked about these vivid nightmares where he was either being choked by the bird or he was physically choking the bird. He, he had so much anger and hatred in his heart that it was just driving him crazy. He ended up getting married. He went on the speaking circuit. He had a bit of celebrity coming back because he really had a phenomenal story, but he was destroying himself behind the scenes with alcohol abuse and, and, and neglecting himself. And, and he just um, was absolutely tortured. And then once um, there was uh, a series of events in his town being hosted by a fellow named Billy Graham. We know them today as the Billy Graham Crusades. And, and his wife just started persistently asking him to come to the Billy Graham Crusades. And he went. And as he sat there and heard the gospel unpacked, it was, it's a very vivid scene in the biography where, where suddenly he just very clearly hears the voice of God basically calling him to believe. And Louis Zamperini becomes a believer. And to me, that's the remarkable turning point of the story. Not, not in his battle with the bird, not when he survived out on the open sea, not, not when that moment, when he was absolutely broken at the end of himself, he discovered grace. When, when he was absolutely the end of his own strength in, in this process, this spiral of self-destruction, he discovered love. And in discovering the love of God in Christ, 
the forgiveness for, for his sins, the forgiveness for all the ways he had hurt himself and hurt others, this, this incredible message of a Savior. God worked grace into his hard heart and softened it, and his pride was humbled, and his self-destruction was derailed, and he was absolutely broken in himself, but made whole in Christ. He, he, was, he was, and it was, a, it was a remarkable turning point in his life. In fact, it was so remarkable that he started wrestling with this whole idea. Okay, I've been forgiven, so I have to forgive. And so he really wrestled with this idea of forgiveness to the point that he actually went back to Japan. And, and he met with the prison guards, the ones that were still surviving. He gathered them um, in, in, and basically communicated to them, I forgive you. And God loves you. And he shared the gospel with them, right? He, he, he was so freed in his forgiveness that he could not only walk back into their presence boldly, but he could walk back into their presence without resentment, without anger, full of love. He did his best to meet with Watanami, um, but he would not meet with him. Uh, he, he reached out numerous times over the course of his life, and the birds simply refused every, every meeting and every opportunity to get together. There's a quote from um, Zamperini in your bulletin. Go ahead and grab your bulletins. I want you to take a look at it. It's on the, uh, your, the quotes are on the right-hand side of the bulletin. And uh, I believe it's the last one on the page. But go ahead and grab that because I want you to take a look. Louis Zamperini said this, I think the hardest thing in life is to forgive. Hate is self-destructive. If you hate somebody, you're not hurting the person you hate. You're hurting yourself. Forgiveness is healing. Actually, it's a real healing. Very simple to say. (laughs) Very hard to do. Right? He even opens with that. He says, I think the hardest thing in life is to forgive. This is a guy who had beat his body and run it to the point where he could be a a world champion. This is a guy who who had faced every suffering in, in... um, the prison camps and, and had survived. And, and, and this guy is the one looking at us and saying, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is forgive. But it is a healing. It is freedom. And that's what we see when we look at, at his story, man. He was able to look at his captors, the ones who tortured him, and his heart didn't feel hate. He had no need for revenge I mean, you guys, this is freedom. To be able to walk back into the presence of the very person who hurt you and to have nothing but grace and freedom and love in your heart. They no longer have hooks in your emotions, hooks in your heart that they can yank. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. When, when somebody that, that has hurt you deeply and you're having a difficult time forgiving them, they have power over you. They continue to have influence over you. They continue to, to be able to pull those heartstrings in very negative ways. He had become free of that. This is freedom. You guys, unforgiveness is the cage we build for the offender, but we're the ones that get locked in. Like when we refuse to forgive and we're like, that person doesn't deserve my forgiveness. That person hurt me too much. That person has violated my trust. That person is, and, and we grow um, separate and, and, and we, we kind of rise above them and we feel superior to them and we feel hurt by them. And we're building a cage in our heart as if we could somehow trap them or only trapping ourselves, right? Unforgiveness is the poison that we mix daily to give to the one who hurt us, but we're the ones drinking it. 
know what I'm talking about? Those, those little anger fantasies that you go through when you're thinking about that person that hurt you and you're thinking about, man, this is how they could get theirs. Man, I wish I could have said this or I would have said this or man, I could have done this or man, I really love it if this scenario would play out. And, and, and every single one of those fantasies, you end up looking good and they end up looking bad. You end up feeling good, they end up feeling horrible, right? I mean, it's honest, right? But each time we do that, every time we craft that little concoction of poison to feed them, we're the ones drinking it. Unforgiveness poisons our soul. So how do we get from here to there? How do we get to a place of forgiveness? How do we do this incredibly hard work of actually moving into genuine forgiveness of people that have hurt us? How do we open the door to the prison so that we can truly and honestly walk free of the captivity that that resentment has created in our heart? Well, last week, Aaron um, preached and he unpacked the first principle that this little book gives us um, about forgiveness, right? Really insightful stuff. And, and, and the, the point of his message was this, that you have to release the debt instead of reduce the discomfort, right? That's the first step toward, toward um, moving toward forgiveness is releasing the debt instead of trying to reduce the discomfort. He talked about how he tried to reduce the discomfort by, by ultimately trying to understand the motives of the one who hurt him, right? He thought, if I could just get to a place where I understand why they did what they did, then I'll be able to understand their motives. I'll be able to understand their actions and I'll be more, less, uh, less inclined to judge them and more likely to forgive them. And so by reducing the pain that they've inflicted on me, by understanding their motives, um, I will uh, be more likely to kind of stumble into forgiveness. And here's the thing, that's not necessarily a bad process. <laughs> it can actually be really helpful to understand why people do what they do. It can be very helpful to, to understand, well, the reason you're rude is because, the reason that you hurt my feelings is that, the reason that you betrayed me is. But here's the thing, sometimes there's no explanation. Sometimes you're not going to discover a reasonable explanation that allows you to understand it and explain it. Even if you do, it may reduce the pain, but it doesn't take it away. It isn't a bad process, but it isn't enough. It's an attempt to reduce the pain but reducing the pain is not necessarily the primary path to forgiveness. But that is our first impulse, isn't it? When we're hurt, our first impulse is to think, if I can reduce the pain, it'll make it easier to forgive. And so we take steps to reduce the discomfort, to reduce the pain of having been hurt by somebody, right? And we do that in a lot of ways, right? Some people do it through physical separation, I, I, I just, if I, I will get out of the, I will not work in the same office as that person. I will not live in the same home as that person. I will not go to church with that person. You know how many people end up leaving churches because somebody in that church hurt their feelings, said the wrong thing, was insensitive to them. And then every time they came into the church, that's the only person they noticed. And every time they came into that space, they just saw that person and, and it just riled them up to the point where they're like, oh, I'll just go to another church. Why? Because if I can get physical separation then it's more likely I can, I can move toward forgiveness. What we're really doing in that is not moving toward forgiveness. What we're doing is trying to reduce the discomfort that their pain has caused us, right? Maybe for you, you're like Aaron. And, and so when you get hurt, you, you, you really try to understand the motives of the person who hurt you. If I could just understand their motives, if I could just somehow, then, then, I will, then it will help me to humanize them and, and, and I'll understand them a little bit better and, 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 and that'll make it easier, right? You're trying to reduce the pain through understanding their motivation. Some of you do the exact opposite. When somebody hurts you, 
um, you have no desire to understand the motivations. Uh, you go to the flip and you just kind of dehumanize them in your mind. You, you immediately just start um, magnifying all of their weaknesses, magnifying all their faults, all their sins, and, and minimizing all their strengths to the point where you feel absolutely superior toward them, as if they were of a subhuman class. And you try to minimize the pain by making them something other than you. You guys, all attempts to reduce suffering may make the pain a little bit less painful. But here's the thing. If you want to be free, it's not about reducing the pain. It's about releasing the debt. They're two totally different things. Aaron last week taught us the first step in actually doing that. The first step in actually releasing the debt is to focus our attention not on how people have hurt us, but how God has blessed us, right? That's the first and and in many ways the most foundational step we need to take in forgiving somebody, right? We need to focus on the forgiveness that we've received in Christ, the grace that God has given us in Jesus. And when we do that, we, we don't, it frees us so we don't approach our pain like righteous sufferers, Instead, instead of deserving payment, we, we approach instead as forgiven transgressors. People who have been forgiven a, a tremendous debt at a tremendous cost. So, so we approach as those who have transgressed, those who needed to be forgiven and were forgiven by God. And that allows us to focus on the grace we've received instead of the offense we've received. And that is the first step and actually releasing the debt instead of just minimizing the pain. Because what it does is it, it rehumanizes the people that have offended against us. Even if we don't understand their motivations, we see us, uh, we're the same class. We're both offenders, we're both transgressors in need of grace. It puts us in the common ground of faith, right? He, he discussed that whole idea of sharing your faith or having community in faith. And when someone hurts you, recognizing we both come to God needing the same grace, We're both sinners in need of redemption. And so it allows us to see those who have offended us eye to eye and to have our vision filled with the grace we've received instead of the offense that has hurt us. And as we do that, it takes us back to the principle that we unpacked in week one, right? This idea that that as we taste grace, it actually changes us, right? We, We put this diagram up. I want to remind you of it. Um, the more I sit with this thing, the more uh, it just, this is an amazing thing, right? We taste grace, God's undeserved love and favor to us in Christ. And, and as we fill our vision with just how incredibly awesome that blessing is, right? That, that Jesus paid our greatest debt. Jesus solved our biggest problem and he did it at his own expense. He did it at, at a price that we can't even understand or evaluate, right? When, when that, that fills our vision, we understand how much we've received, it actually births this experience of gratitude in our heart, right? We just naturally start feeling grateful to God, right? Instead of self-protective, self-focused, it moves us out of self into adoration and love for God. And as that happens, we're released to generosity toward others, right? 
And we see this happen all the time, right? That's the story of the early church financially, right? All these people became believers. They were all in, in Jerusalem because of the feasts. A lot of them didn't have permanent housing there. There was a lot of need. So what'd they do? Everybody started bringing everything they owned and laying it at the, the apostles' feet, saying, here's property, here's money, here are goods, sell them. Let's, let's take care of these people, right? That kind of radical outpouring of generosity was unprecedented completely countercultural, but it was a reaction to grace. Grace came in and produced uh, gratitude and that gratitude freed them to generosity. And as they gave, you guys, they experienced a deeper experience of grace. As they moved in generosity, they experienced more grace themselves. One of the mysteries of the Christian faith is this. Every single one of us have received the same exact thing in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have all the blessing I have in Christ, and I have all the blessing you have. We are seated in the heavenlies in Christ. We are fully blessed. We are sons and daughters of God. We have an inheritance with God that we are co-heirs with Christ, right? We have it all, but we're not all experiencing all we have. We all have the same amount of grace, but none of us are experiencing all the grace we've received in Christ. We experience more of what we already have as we move into this flow of grace to gratitude, to generosity, to a deeper experience of grace. And that's when we unleash the true blessings of life uh, uh, in in our hearts, right? Joy, contentment, purpose, um, strength, right? And and so... um, you're actually moving from freedom to freedom, right? The free gift of God frees me to freely give. And so as we apply this to relationships, you can see how this applies to forgiveness. As I focus on the grace I have received and it moves my heart to gratitude, it frees me to a place where I can release the debt others owe me, the relational, emotional debt they owe me because they've hurt me or harmed me or defrauded me or ignored me. And as I move into giving them grace... I experience a deeper experience of grace, right? I become freer. I become more joyful. I become um, less tied to the things that would anchor me down and hurt me. So the first principle of forgiveness is that we have to release the debt, not just reduce the suffering. Usually our first impulse is to reduce the suffering, and that's because we don't like pain, right? And sometimes, you guys, that's perfectly appropriate. I'm not saying it's not. There are times when somebody has hurt us and a time of separation is absolutely necessary for our emotional healing and well-being. I'm not going to say it's not. But there's a difference between taking healthy, necessary steps for personal healing and simply pulling away and rejecting somebody because we don't want to deal with the pain that it causes us. There are times when God will call us to stay in the very presence of the people who hurt us, just like Philemon. He sent Onesimus right back into that house, right? Onesimus was the one carrying this letter. Knock, knock, knock here, right? Let's figure out this mess, right? I sinned against you. I violated trust with you. I started all kinds of marital disharmony, probably. I, I definitely robbed you of social standing. And here I am back on your doorstep to do life with you right here. If we truly want to be free, we need to recognize that the solution begins with releasing the debt, not reducing the suffering. Now, there are two more principles that we need to look at in this letter. We'll deal with one this week and one next week. And the second principle is this. If we're truly going to be free to forgive, we need to learn how to trust God with our suffering because we have to do something with the pain. We have to do something with the pain. 
Take a look at verses 15 and 16. There's something pretty interesting going on in these verses. As Paul's talking to Philemon, he says, for this, and by this, he means the whole situation, Onesimus stealing from him, violating trust, um, running away, stealing, all that. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you. That's why Onesimus was parted from you, Philemon, for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, if you missed our sermon two weeks ago, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to it on the podcast. We dealt with this whole thing of, of slavery, servanthood, and, and, and really how in the ancient world, it was, it was, there were some fundamental differences between how we perceive, perceive slavery. And it's fairly important to the context. Um, all that to say that even though Onesimus is an escaped slave, in this case, he is the one who is wronged, Philemon. He is the one who has defrauded Philemon. And what Paul is saying is really interesting. He's looking at Philemon and he says, look, perhaps this is why that happened. Perhaps this is why he stole from you, took something of value from you, possibly took something that was irreplaceable from you. Perhaps this is why he violated your trust worked his way into the inner circle of your trust and then violated that trust, betraying you. Maybe, maybe, perhaps this is why he made you look bad in the community, costing you social standing and bringing shame on, on you and your wife and on your family. Perhaps this is why um, there have been tensions not only in the church, in your home, but possibly in your family, in your home, right? And we we're not told, but, but with these kind of violations of trust, I could see where it would cause potential tension, even in the marriage between Philemon and Apphia. Perhaps this is why you suffered. Because God planned to use your suffering for His blessing. Perhaps God wanted you to lose so that he might win. Perhaps God wanted you to feel pain so he could feel blessing. How's that sit with you? You like that? God looks at you and says, that person that hurt you, that person that defrauded you, that person that didn't live up to your expectations, that person who didn't give you what you desperately needed them to give you, that person, perhaps you suffered so they could be blessed. How do you like that? I know I don't. Right? My heart rises up. I'm like, what? <laughs> You want me to pay the price for their blessing? You're, you're going to make me suffer at their hands so that they can get the benefit of my pain? That's not right. That's not just. That's not good. That's the kind of thing where you're like, all right, God, that sounds like you're doing something called blessing, but thanks, but no thanks for that one. <laughs> I'll opt out of that one right? 
that maybe that's an advanced course in, in grace blessing. I don't want that one, right? Keep me in 101. I just want to keep, just give me good stuff, okay? You know, just keep blessing me and make my life easy and, and let me just feel loved and let me be around community I like and let me be around people that like me and just, man, that stuff, <laughs> I'm not in for that. Um, but you are. You guys, we can only cope with this kind of thing when you see somebody defraud you and then get blessed by God because of the way they defrauded you. You're only going to be able to deal with that if you learn how to trust God with your suffering. And to trust God with our suffering, we need to see God's purpose in it. See, I love that little word, perhaps, when he says, um, perhaps this is why he was parted from you. Paul um, had a unique relationship with God, to say the least, right? God spoke to him. God, um, at one point, even transported him into his very presence. He had out-of-body experiences, or maybe in-body. He doesn't even know. He had um, unique power by the Holy Spirit. He was able to perform miracles, and, and, and he obviously wrote a lot of the Scripture. And he's looking at Philemon, and he's like, look, I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps. I don't know. God hasn't revealed it to me. I don't know why this happened, but perhaps as I look at what happened, as I look at the way this unfolded, as I look at the way this story is playing out, I'm just going to take a guess. Perhaps this is why it happened. So that he could come back to you, no longer a slave, but a brother. No longer defined by who he was or what he did, but covered in the grace of Christ. See, I love that because what Paul is saying is I'm not sure I understand what God's doing here, but I'm confident there's a why. Right? Paul was no stranger to suffering. As we read through the life of Paul, he was a guy who suffered constantly. In fact, when he became a believer, Jesus basically said, look, I'm going to show you how much you get to suffer for my namesake. <laughs> That's going to be your inheritance in this life. You get pain. And he did. He got stoned. He got shipwrecked. He got snake bit. He got betrayed. He got left behind. He got, I mean, this guy lived from pain to pain to pain to pain. <laughs> and yet in the middle of it, what he's saying is sometimes you don't know what motivation is moving God's hand, but you can trust his heart. I don't always know why God does what he does. I, in fact, I don't necessarily need to know because I'm not the one in control. The real issue is not, do I know why? The real issue is, do I trust the one who's working the why? Take a look at the verse. This is uh, Romans 8, 28. It's an incredible promise to believers, um, to those who have believed in Jesus, right? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, for those who have believed in Christ and been forgiven as the benefit of of. God's grace through faith. Those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There are some key things we see in this passage. And the first is this. This passage makes absolutely no sense if God is not in absolute control. God is in control. God is sovereign. It's the only way this works. If God's waiting to find out what happens with us, if God's not sure how things are going to turn out, if God's not in control, if God's not on the other side of the crisis waiting for us to get there, 
already knowing how it's going to turn out, this doesn't make any sense. How can he promise to work all things together for good if he doesn't know what's coming? If he's not sure how it's going to play out? He's in absolute sovereign control. And in that position, he is working, not passively, very actively, all things together for good according to his purpose. What that tells us is that God wasn't surprised by Onesimus' actions. He wasn't like, oh, hey, I didn't expect that. He just stole and ran away. I wonder how that's going to turn out, right? There was a why behind the what. He wasn't taken off guard. He wasn't surprised. It was part of God's plan. He wasn't surprised by Philemon's suffering. The price Philemon had to pay for this part of the plan to unfold. There's a why behind the what, because God has a purpose. And that purpose is to work everything together for good. That's his purpose. He he is taking the human story, which is a story of tragedy, of rebellion and rejection of God, which was going to lead to nothing but death, and he is rewriting it as a story of triumph. He is retelling the human story as a story of redemption and restoration. And in the retelling of that story, he is in control. Now, it's pretty easy to trust God's control when everything's good, isn't it? Right? I mean, we like it when everything's good. When you sit down and you got a nice steak dinner and, 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 and your wallet is, is healthy, we won't say overflowing, um, your finances are good, you know, your, your business has been blessed, you met all your markers, you got the bonus at the end of the year, it's easy in those moments to be like, oh man, God is so good. Right? You're sitting there, it's sunset, you got a nice beverage and you oh man, God is so good. You get up in the morning, perfect cup of coffee. Oh, it's morning. It's hard to say God is good. But <laughs> a cup of coffee helps offset that, right? When, when, when things are good, um, it's, it's easy to say, you know, yeah, God's in control. It's awesome. But what about when things go bad? What about when you don't hit your sales markers? What about when you miss the bonus? What about when your reputation is being falsely torn down and there's nothing you can do about it? What about when your best seems to be not good enough? What about when every time you take a turn in your plan of life, you're hitting another pothole that is completely derailing the way you think things are supposed to go? How thankful are you for God's control in those moments? How quick are you to bring your heart to say, thank you, Lord, for this pain today? Guys, listen to me. We don't always understand God's hand, but we can absolutely trust God's heart. And in the end, we'll understand what his hand is doing. And sometimes God works his greatest blessing through our greatest suffering. I mean, if there's any lesson we can take away from the cross, I mean, it seems like that would at least be one of them, right? That God works blessing through pain, right? God purposed to unleash the greatest blessing humanity has ever known through the greatest suffering God has ever known. 
When God, he who knew no sin, became sin for us, the embodiment of everything that we had done wrong, of our cosmic treason, taking our place as our substitute, enduring the, the righteous anger of the judge that we deserved in our place, living the life we should have lived, dying the death we deserved to die. Suffering. God purposed to bless And he did it through suffering. When Jesus suffered, he wasn't suffering without purpose. And neither was Philemon. And neither are you. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, it can rattle us a little bit, man. You start talking about God being in control of all things and you start thinking about all things includes that'll knock you a little off balance. Because there's a lot of things in the all things that are just really, really ugly. But isn't that what it says? How many things does he work together? All? Do you see an exception clause here? How many, how many things are left out of all? None? <laughs> I, I'm, God works all things together, right? He is sovereign, and he is telling a story, and in telling that story, he is working all things together. And this is going to mess with your mind, but here's what I want you to catch, you guys. As challenging as this is to us intellectually, it is incredibly comforting to us emotionally. Your suffering is not without purpose. Your pain is never without a point. You are never the victim of simply random circumstances and events. God is telling a story of redemption and restoration and your pain is part of that story. And he will work it together for good. There will come a point when you will understand the hand of God. It may not be until you get to eternity. I don't know. Perhaps. <laughs> but when you see it, you'll understand it. When you see God's hand working in your pain, you will be able to look back and say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God for a God who would tell a better story for my life than I would tell for myself. Praise God for who, who is a good physician and, and a skilled surgeon. And while I'm on the surgery table experiencing the pain, I may not know exactly what he's doing or why he's doing it, but I trust his hand because I know his heart. Because he's shown me his heart in Jesus. This is not a God who in his power and in his control is, is like a, a puppet master just outside of time kind of pulling the strings and ha 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 and look what I'm making these little humans do. This is a God who entered our story, who became human, who actually absorbed our pain. And he can relate to my pain. He knows my pain because he felt my pain. We have a God who knows what it is to suffer. And we know what it is. We, know it, we have a God who knows what it is to see redemption flow from that suffering. Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He trusted God's hand because he trusted God's heart. God is working all things 
together for good. He is not out of control. And he has a purpose that is good. If God's in control, if God is working out the sovereign plans of his purposes, that means I don't have to keep tabs on my relationships. I don't have to have a a mental Excel spreadsheet where I've got all my relationships and who's in the plus column and who's in the negative column and who owes me and who doesn't. I don't need to keep that mental IOU of that person who defamed me or defrauded me or said something wrong about me or deeply hurt me. I don't have to keep the debt because I'm not the accountant. I don't have to get my own justice. I don't have to mark my own suffering because God knows. He's the account keeper and he is a God of justice and of grace. And if he wants to work through my suffering to bring blessing in someone else's life, I will eventually be able to say, praise God. Because he has worked through my suffering like he worked through Christ's. Because he used my pain to bless the one who brought my pain, just like he worked worked through Christ's pain to bless those who brought it. I can trust him with my suffering and I can release the debt. I know from personal experience, and I think you probably do too, that there's a part of you that simply does not want to release the debt. If you have been deeply hurt, which almost everybody in this room has been, there is a part of you that feels very, very self-justified in holding a place of resentment in your heart of building that little cage and saying, you wronged me. And we feel very, very protective of that resentment. In fact, it comes to a point where we even kind of treasure it. Gollum in the ring of power, right? This is my precious, right? And, 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 and we think it empowers us, honestly. We think if I let that go, then my suffering will be without purpose. If I let that go then what's going to happen to that pain? It is up to me to hold that account. It is up to me to hold that resentment. It is up to me to extract some payment. And we hold on to that ring and it saps us of our power and it destroys our joy because that is like a cauldron of poison. You guys, your heart was not designed by God to hold hate. Your heart was designed by God to flow in love. It is made alive by love, is empowered by love. It moves in strength in love. And when we fill it with hate and resentment, we sap our own strength. We destroy our own joy. Because it won't be contained. You can't just keep one tiny little area of resentment. It spreads. And it affects every other area of life. For us to release the debt, we have to trust God with our suffering. God, you had a purpose in it, and you are the one who needs to figure out how it plays out. You're the one who needs to bring justice or grace. I'm going to trust you with it because it's not my job. I am not you. I release the debt because I trust you with my pain. And as you do that, as you tell that part of you that says, don't do it, don't do it, to shut up, 
as you tell that, you hear that part of you that says, man, if you do this, if you do this, there's a part of you that's going to be diminished. There's a part of you that's going to be lost. There's a part of you that you need to tell that part that, uh, just to die. Because honestly, that's the part of you that wants to kill you. The Bible calls it the flesh. And it's evil. Grace releases its blessing as we receive and give it. As we release the debt, we discover the experience of grace. You know, this applies just as much for those situations that you're having a difficult time forgiving yourself. We talk a lot about the suffering that we've received and, and there are people that we resent. But I know there are some sitting in this room that honestly are thinking about things they've done, people they've hurt. And they've built a little cage in their heart of resentment toward themselves and anger toward themselves. And they feel like, I need to punish myself. I need to hold myself accountable. As if Christ's death was not sufficient for you and his grace was not for that area. That's pride. You need to bring that and release that debt. Jesus died for your sin to release you not only of the guilt of of what people have done to you, but to release you of the guilt of what you have done to others. And, And in releasing that debt, it's not that you're not taking responsibility for your actions. You're simply allowing the consequences to flow to Jesus who paid for those consequences and releasing the shame because he took it. It's not yours anymore. And you're trusting him with the outcome. A God who can do what you could never do. A God who can bring healing that you can never achieve and blessing that you can never hope to gain. By harboring that little place of unforgiveness to yourself, you are in fact defrauding God of the glory of the cross and the resurrection in your life. There's nothing noble about it. It's pride. Followers of Jesus, we live in grace. We receive grace from God and we are designed to give grace to ourselves and to others. And you are enriched by grace as you live in its flow. Receiving and giving and receiving and giving. And as you do that, it changes you. When you release that debt and let God be God and let him keep the accounts and let him work his purpose, you are enriched in his grace and you are increased in your joy and you are strengthened in your walk and you are made freer and more content. You are freed from your pride and let loose in your humility. You know, Louis Zamperini, um, in his later years, you know, he didn't just go on the speaking circuit and tell a great story and get paid well and after he, after he became a believer in Christ, man, it, it's just like U-turn. Um, God delivered him from his, from his alcoholism. God um, came in and, and gave him the equipment he needed to wrestle with the demons of, of his past and of his emotional well-being and, and, and to save his marriage. And he ended up starting youth camps and, and, and investing kids' lives and, and um, becoming really this, this spokesperson for the power of forgiveness and of reconciliation. And, and uh, toward, all the way through the end of his life, man, he was a man that was marked by joy and freedom and courage. Um, he was learning new things like skateboarding and, and 
and um, repelling all the way until the end of his life. He was a man that was, that was freed in grace to enjoy life. That is not the way his life was going to end. That's not the story he was writing for himself. And I'm telling you this morning that God will write a better story for your life than you would write for yourself. But you need to trust him with your pain. It transformed Philemon's life and that little community. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week as we wrap up our look at that. And it can transform your life as well. But we do need to learn to trust God with our suffering. You guys are going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the screen. I'm going to ask you to pray and, and, and just create some space, do some business with God. I'm going to remind you that we have worship response cards in your bulletin. Um, we would love to hear from you. If you're a guest with us this morning, let us know you're here. We'd love to hear about how you, how you heard about us. Um, if you have prayer requests, fill that out. We, we pray over those um, every week. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Uh, if you, if you have questions, uh, suggestions, complaints, all cool. Just write them down um, and go ahead and drop them in the response boxes that we have up front and by the door. Um, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to grab a cup of coffee or something, there's a place you can even check for that. We'd love to get together and, and talk. Okay? We're here to, to, to serve you, to love you, to bless you, and we'd love to hear from you. Okay? If you're a first-time guest with us this morning, we do have a gift for you at Connection Point. Just swing by on your way out. Um, we don't make it weird. We're not going to collect information. We just want to say thanks bless you for visiting. Okay. Let me pray for us. Uh, and then we'll go into a time of response, um, create some space for you to just listen and talk to God a little bit. And then we're going to share communion. Uh, but we'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are, um, good. (laughs) What a profound statement. Even that is you are ultimately satisfying and good in every intention. You are the one who works all things together for good, and you are the ultimate good around which all things revolve. Lord, I thank you that you have not rejected us because of our rejection of you. You have not left us in our sin. You have not abandoned us to our own ability to save ourselves. You freely pour out your love to us in Christ that we might be changed and freed, that we might be more like Jesus, becoming more and more of who we were created to be and less and less of who we would make ourselves apart from you. Give us the courage, Lord, to face our demons. Give us the courage to release our debts. Give us the courage to trust you with our pain, knowing, Lord, that ultimately you are a much better judge than we ever could be. You actually sit on the righteous throne. So allow us, Lord, to have a measure of sanity, to let you be you, and to rejoice that in your sovereignty you love us and are for us. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.